Bibles today, and uh, we're going to open them right to the book of John. As I said before, it is Palm Sunday. What a cool day to be at church. Uh, Palm Sunday is the day, of course, where we celebrate Jesus making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Now, we say triumphant entry because that's what the chapter title on your Bible says, but it might not have seemed triumphant to everybody. Jesus was the Messiah, but very few people recognized him as the Messiah. Uh, Some people did, some people didn't. Some people still thought he was a prophet. Some people had clued in by revelation that he was not only the Messiah, but he was the Son of God. But as he walked into Jerusalem, some of the words they were saying was, Hosanna, Hosanna. We sang those words today in a couple of different songs. And there's a reason we picked those songs today, because Hosanna is, the, is what they were saying on Palm Sunday. Hosanna means Lord save, or the Lord is our salvation. So as they were singing Hosanna, as Jesus walking in, they were acknowledging that he was their salvation. They were acknowledging not only that, but they were calling him the son of David. Well, you might say they were all, you know, many of them would have been in the line of David. But the reason they called him the son of David was they were acknowledging that he was the promised Messiah who would come in the family line, the family tree of David. And as he walked in, as he rode into Jerusalem, they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were quoting from prophecy, but they were acknowledging the Messiah has come to town. He's finally come back to Jerusalem. He had already been to Jerusalem, but this was that, they knew this was a different, this was different. Something was different about this trip. This was the time when things were beginning to click and prophecy was happening in front of their eyes. What most of them didn't realize is this was the last week he would be alive before his crucifixion. It's not like he didn't give them plenty of opportunities to clue in about that. He told them several times, I've got to die. I must be lifted up. I've got to, you know, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I've got to be in the grave. I mean, he told them how many times this is going to happen, but nobody really clicked that that's what was going on. As I've said before, and we'll set it up a little bit, but as we've said so many times before in previous Palm Sundays and things like that, Jesus was not coming into a city that liked him. Let's just recall, just we'll all refresh our memory. When Jesus was going to go heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead, his disciples begged him not to because Lazarus lived in Bethany, and Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. Bethany was only a couple miles away. So they were afraid that if they got too close to Jerusalem, they were going to be killed. In fact, one of his disciples said, Fine, Lord, if you're going to go die, we might as well go die with him. And that, that, that's either sarcastic or very brave. I can't tell, but, you know, it's, it's a statement at least. And you, it tells you what they were thinking. This is a dangerous place. So we think of him entering Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem being so glad to see him. But the scripture actually says there were two groups of people that greeted Jesus. The disciples that went on ahead of him. As he walked, as he rode in, the disciples that ran ahead of him and and announced his arrival, and the pilgrims that had come from the outlying countryside that had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Those were the people happy to see Jesus. Guess who wasn't happy to see Jesus? Pharisees, Sadducees, in fact, pretty much everybody in Jerusalem. You, You had two different attitudes. The Jerusalem locals had two different attitudes. They either didn't care, didn't know who he was, because they were asking, who is this guy? Or they knew who he was and they wanted him dead. 
So that doesn't sound like the, the crowd, you know, that, that doesn't sound like the crowd you want to just kind of, you know, speak in front of, or it doesn't sound like a, an optimal parade crowd. You'd rather have people that like you. And in fact, those people were there, but they were outsiders. Jerusalem itself was a hotbed and a dangerous place for Jesus. And this is why it's so significant that when the disciples came into Jerusalem, as they, it says, as they began, came over the mountain, uh, came over the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem came into view, they began to shout with a loud voice and they began to tell people what Jesus had done. And they specifically began to talk about the miracles he had done. And they talked about him raising Lazarus from the dead. So this is, this is not what I pictured when I was a kid. I just thought everybody was happy to see Jesus. But you think about it. Not everybody could have been happy to see Jesus. Because a week later they were shouting for him to be put to death. They were, they were shouting that he'd be put to death over a dangerous criminal. They had their choice. Let this dangerous criminal, perhaps even a serial killer. We don't know what Barabbas did, but we know he was a bad guy. They were given a choice. Release this dangerous criminal or release Jesus. And they said, give us Barabbas. Release the dangerous criminal. We'd rather have him than have Jesus released. And they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. So that's the kind of place Jesus is entering. But I want, I want to set this up. In John chapter 11, Jesus heals Lazarus. Raises him from the dead. Healing is almost an understatement, isn't it? We said before, if you know anything about anatomy and, and what happens when you die, whatever killed Lazarus wasn't near as bad as what, what happened to him after he died. You know, your body begins to break down, turn you right back into worm food. And, and uh, healing him of whatever killed him would have been the smallest miracle. But Jesus did it. And as some of you know, Raising a man who'd been dead over three days from the dead was one of the last and final signs that he was the Messiah. And the Jews knew this sign. It was an important, it was one of the things that they recognized would be a sign of Messiah. If he could do that, he was the real deal. So here's what happens when he heals Lazarus, when he raises him from the dead. In verse 45, it says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Little tattletales. I mean, you'd think that wouldn't be a bad thing. Go tell the Pharisees, I raised a guy from the dead. He's been dead four days. He stunk. I raised him from the dead. Go tell him. Go tell those guys. But they weren't going to say, hey, guys, maybe we were wrong. They were going to say, look, he's done one more thing. This has gone too far. Verse 47, it says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Why does it say chief priests and the Pharisees? Once again, because there's another group, the Sadducees. These are the guys in charge. We blame the Pharisees for everything, but the Pharisees weren't as bad. There was the Sadducees as well. They all had something to lose. They all had something to lose if Jesus came to power. So they convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs. Now, for us, signs is, you know, it means different things. But the, the word signs that they're using there means to an attesting miracle. In other words, a miracle that proves you are who you say you are. It's a miracle proving he's the Messiah. They, there was two different words, or actually three different words that they use in the Gospels. They use the word miracle, they use the word sign, and they use the word wonder. Sign was specifically something that proved he was the Messiah. Something that proved he was the Son of God. Something that proved he was who he said he was. So they weren't just saying he's performing many miracles. 
He's doing a lot of tricks. They were saying he's doing a lot of things that seem to point to him being the Messiah. Now, that's the appropriate time to go, he's the Messiah. Oops. We messed up. That's okay. We can rewind. He seems like a forgiving guy. Let's just go. Mia culpa, our fault. Let's just go. But instead, here's what they say. They say, what are we doing? We're not doing enough. We're not, we should be doing something. What are we doing? He's doing, he's performing these signs in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, oh, what arrogance. If we let him go on like this, just raise the guy from the dead. He walked on the water. He fed 5,000 people and their families, and then 4,000 men and their families. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Yeah, that's right. All men will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, what was important to them was their political power. That was more important than knowing the truth. If everybody follows him, the Romans will come. They'll take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> Nor do you take into account that is it expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, here's what he meant. He meant we kill this guy and the revolution is crushed, the rebellion is crushed. We kill this guy, everything goes back to normal. But what he didn't realize is that he was reliving prophecy. He was, he was saying exactly what would happen. He just didn't realize that Jesus was coming to die. But he was doing it on purpose for the whole nation. Verse 51 says, not, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only. Praise God, because you know, I'm not ethnically part of that nation, but look what it says. Not for that nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into, the one, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Praise God. That's us. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. So we're getting, we're, we're having a, a, a showdown ramping up here. I mean, this, the tension is high. From that moment, Jesus knows what they're plotting, and he doesn't show publicly amongst the Jewish religious leaders. He goes away for a while. And the question is, what's he going to do? Is he going to hide out till it all cools down? Or is he going to come and face them on their own turf? And he does exactly that. It says he stayed with his disciples. But in verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Okay, so that's the atmosphere of Jerusalem. Everybody's wondering, will Jesus show up? His, the people that like him are thinking, is he going to show up and do something cool? The people that hate him are saying, if anybody sees him, report it. See something, say something. Report it, seize him. Citizens arrest. Just grab the guy. Now here, you know how many times they, in his own hometown they tried to throw him off a cliff and, and stone him and, and, 
because throwing him off a cliff wasn't enough, you know. They were going to throw him off a cliff and stone him, and he just kind of slipped through the crowd. At another feast that he went to where they were looking for him, he just wouldn't let himself be seen until he was ready, and then he stood up and revealed himself to everybody. So here's this point. They're all wondering, is he going to show up? And he's got a warrant out for his arrest. He's got a, a, a bounty on his head. And that's the atmosphere that sets us up for the triumphant entry. This is the atmosphere for Palm Sunday. It's no longer, you know, uh, see, when I was a kid, we'd walk in with palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I, I love that still, you know, it's cool. And we might do it again sometime. But, you know, as we walked in with the palm branches, it just seemed so happy. It just seemed like everybody was happy. And it's happy, happy, happy. We're just, we're thrilled to see Jesus. But they weren't thrilled to see Jesus. The question is, what's going on in Jesus' mind? You see, we, we can tell through all of this what's going on in everybody else's mind. The disciples would rather stay away. His followers from other regions have come to Jerusalem, and they're curious if he'll show up. The religious leaders hope he shows up so they can kill him. But what is Jesus thinking? And I would submit to you that Jesus has been leading up to this moment all his life. All his life, he's ready for this moment. He draws away because it's not time yet. But he's getting ready for the final showdown. Not between him and the religious leaders, but the final showdown between him and death itself. They want to seize him. They want to kill him. But in chapter 12, and let's skip, skip down. In verse 9, it says, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who'd come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to shout. So notice it's the large, large crowd that came to the feast. It's not the folks that already live in Jerusalem. It's those that came from the other areas. That large crowd came out to meet Jesus, and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, you can understand why this is inflammatory. They just called him the king. This is what the religious leaders were afraid of. You start calling him the king, the Romans are going to say, okay, what? You called him what? Because the Romans are in charge. They've got their puppet king, Herod, set up. Herod tried to kill him earlier. I don't know if you've ever read this section of scripture. It's really cool. But Herod is, there's a group of disciples that come to Jesus and they go, Herod's trying to kill you. And Jesus says, you know, let's read it. Oh, it's good. (laughs) Hold your place in John. Go to the book of Luke. You're just not going to get the same effect just by listening to me. You need to see it. Because really what's at stake here is we're wondering what's going on in Jesus' mind. Is he stumbling into death or is he going it with eyes wide open, purposely going for the joy set before him? I want you to know that Jesus never had his life taken from him. This is so important. Nobody took Jesus' life. There is a modern 
telling of Jesus that, that, that portrays it like Jesus was a rebel and they couldn't stand it so they had to kill him and oh wasn't it a terrible thing they killed him they put him to death oh and he had his life taken away from him and I'm telling you it was terrible it was bad that they did that but Jesus did not have his life taken he says no one takes my life but I lay it down freely why would he do that because he loved you because there was a massive chasm between you and God. Because everything that you need is in Him. And you were separated from Him. You were dead and He is life. And you were separated from life. Sin separated us. Not the big ones. They're all big ones. Sometimes we think there's, there's big ones and there's small ones. No, there's big ones. They're all big ones. One little sin was enough to separate us from God. The error is that we think any sin is little. But it separated us. It killed us. Eating from that tree was enough to separate Adam and Eve from God. How much more have we done? And yet, God loved you enough that Jesus came to bear your reproach, to bear your sin. And all his time on earth during his whole ministry, yes, he healed, yes, he delivered, yes, he taught. But the whole time, his eyes were fixed on the final goal, that he would die for us. No one took that. No one took his life. He went to the cross willingly for you. Thank God for that. He went willingly for you. In Luke chapter 13, verse 31. Did you know that some of the Pharisees were on Jesus' side? He had some friends in the Pharisee places. You never think that, but he did. Verse 31, just at that same time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, I don't know if these guys were on his team and just warning him or if they were just using that as an excuse to get him out of their region. But they said, Herod wants to kill you. Oh, man, Herod too. Do you think Jesus freaks out and goes, Oh, no, not Herod. He says, go and tell that fox. You go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I reach my goal. <laughs> today and tomorrow. Now, he's not talking about literal days. This is several days. But he's saying, I've got, I've got a mission here. Day one and two, I'm here curing people, I'm delivering people, but on the third day I reach my goal, and he says this in verse 33, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, I'm not dying here. Don't worry, I'm not going to die here. I'm not at my goal yet. Verse 34, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones, and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers the brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What day is he talking about? Palm Sunday. He says, I'm not coming back to Jerusalem until the day you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That day arrived. The third day was there. The day where he was almost at his goal. He was not wandering into a trap or an ambush. 
He was going with one thing in mind, to die and to rise again. As he steps into Jerusalem, the crowd meets him. The crowd is excited, but many are angry. It says this in verse 12. On the next day, the Lord, uh, John 12, 12, by the way, we're back in John, sorry. On the next day, the large crowd who'd come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, donkey sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these were the things written of him and that they had done these things, they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out and met him. Now notice that. Why did people go out and meet him? One of the reasons people went out and met him was because his disciples couldn't keep their mouths shut. And they kept telling him he, he got a guy up from the grave. So more people came out to see him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. I love that. It's always the other Pharisee's fault, right? It's not you. It's that guy. Chapter before they said, what are we doing? Now they've gone to blaming each other individually. You see, you're not doing any good. The whole world has gone after him. Praise the Lord. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Listen to that. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You say, how can he be glorified? By being lifted up on a cross. That's not glory, that's shame. But the glory was the fact that he was doing it for us. And the glory was in the fact that he wasn't just going to suffer on the cross and be defeated. But there was victory to come. He says, my hour is here. You see, Jesus had one thing on his mind. The Greeks have come to see him, but you notice he's not deterred by that. He's not really concerned with what they have to say at this point. He answers them and says, it's not the time for that. The hour has come for me to be glorified. All this time, Jesus is looking to the cross for you. All this time, he's got one thing on his mind. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Do you hear that? He says, and he asks a very valid question. Should I say, Father, save me 
Later on, he said that if I did, if I asked the Father, he'd send thousands of angels. In the Old Testament, we see one angel wipe out the whole Assyrian army. The Assyrian army, one of the best land infantries of the ancient world. I want to go into details about what was, no, no details, all right? Like Jesus, eyes on the goal. It's tempting. No. One angel knocks out the whole army. But Jesus says, if I asked, the Father would send legions of angels and wipe it all out and deliver me from the cross. But I'm not asking him to do that. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. When the soldiers came to arrest him, they said, we're looking for Jesus. Are you the one? He says, I am. Oh, the words I am, which have been echoed throughout the centuries, which God said to Moses, which God said to his people, the Israelites, which God defined himself, which Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am. And, and the soldiers fall down. These are, the, these are not Romans. These are the, the, the uh, temple guards, but they're armed. They're ready, and they fall to the ground. They get up, and he says it again. They're dumb enough to ask the same question. They fall down again. He saves them a, he saves them a third time. He doesn't do it. And when Peter tries to deliver him by trying to kill a guy and accidentally chops off his ear instead, Jesus picks it up and sticks it back on his head and says, Peter, that's not what we're doing right now. You don't know what you're doing. Nobody takes my life from me. For this purpose, I came to this hour. I came for this purpose. Oh, how much must Jesus have loved you? That all during this time, he had that many chances to turn back. He had that many chances to save his own life. He had that many chances to call for deliverance. But he loved you so much, he refused his calls for, he refused to call for help. He refused to escape. He refused to run away. He said, for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the whole reason I've come. The Bible says, for, the pur- for this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has, come not for my, has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now, <laughs> now the ruler of this world, that's not God, that's, the, that's Satan. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You know, a lot of people, we use that for a lot of different things. We say, if we lift Jesus up, he'll draw men to himself. And we use that as, as a way of saying, let's brag about him, let's talk about him. But, and that's good, because there's, there's lots of scriptures that back that up as well. But you notice what Jesus says. When he says, if I'm lifted up from the earth, he's not talking about if people brag about me. He's not talking about if I get a lot of hype. The next verse says, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by with which he was to die. Here's the point. If I am lifted up on a cross, 
I'm going to draw all men to myself. Now, this Bible says no one is able to come with God unless the Spirit draws him. And there might be if people have taught you that uh, some people God just doesn't care about. There, there might be Christians that have said to you, some God wants to be saved and some God doesn't. But I'm going to tell you something. God knows who will believe. He's, he's in the future. He's not limited to time. He's seen it already. It's not surprising to him. And yet... He's not telling anybody, no, you don't get to believe. Because here's what the scripture says. He says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw how many people? All All men to myself. Praise God. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by by which he was to die. In the book of Hebrews... There's a section of scripture that, that has always encouraged me. The letter, of, the letter of, uh, to the Hebrews was written to a group of people who were under great persecution. You can imagine, because some of you have been through it, what it might have been like for them to be rejected by their own families, rejected by their culture. It says their land, a lot of them had their land seized from them, their property seized because they decided to follow Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews is often encouraging them because there were some that were still on the fence. It's going to be very difficult if we choose to follow Jesus. If we choose to follow him, we're going to be rejected by so many. We're going to have to lose so much. But remember what Jesus said. If you lose your life, you'll find it. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of people to say, get off the fence. Because what he's offering you is far greater than what anyone else is offering you. And he gives them an example because they're wondering, how can we endure? How can I stay on this path? It looks like it might be difficult. But he says, no, 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 look what happens. In Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews 11, he's told them about all the great men and women of faith that came before. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Why? Because we've got to have the same attitude that Jesus had, who was not looking at the distractions, who wasn't looking at the escape plans, but at his eyes fixed on the goal. And because he had his eyes fixed on the goal, not one power of hell, heaven, or earth could stop him. Not that heaven would try to stop him. But here he was fixed on his goal and nothing could stop him. It's interesting to me that Satan was in, I mean, hell was in such chaos. Satan doesn't have a a master plan so much as he has a bunch of little plans. He's just angry and confused and he's trying to do everything he can, I would imagine. But it's interesting to me that on one hand, Satan tries to kill Jesus. And then Satan uses one of Jesus' disciples to try to convince Jesus not to go to the cross. Then he flips back again and tries to kill Jesus on the cross. You see, he really doesn't know what to do. He's just trying to get in the way. But look what it says. Back, it says, in the sin that so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you have the same attitude as Jesus, you recognize that it's not about what's going on right now. There's a goal ahead of us. And nothing is worth giving up that goal. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Praise God. The author and perfecter of faith. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you hear what he said? For the joy set before him. There was joy in front of Jesus. And because of that joy, that's what he looked at. There's joy set before him. What was the joy set before Jesus that finally I get to get off? I get out of this dump. I'm tired of these people. I'm tired of their outhouses. I'm tired of staying at their houses. I can't wait to go back to heaven where, where I get to be comfortable and, I, and people, people celebrate me and angels take care of me. Do you think that's what he's saying? What's his joy? What's the joy set before us? us right us being saved the joy set before Jesus is you and because of that he endured the cross despising the shame we use the word despise almost like we hate something but despise literally means to take of no account like it's not it's not a big deal it's nothing it's nothing the shame that he went through he considered nothing because of you because he loved you and there was joy in front of him. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's significant because Hebrews talks about him as our high priest. And the high priest in the Old Testament never sat down. Because if you sat down, that was saying you were done. And people kept sinning. And so you kept having to offer sacrifices for them. But Jesus sat down because his work was done. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you know what's interesting? He continues on in this thought, saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's so easy to get caught up in what's happening. It's so easy to get, I mean, do you realize how many things came against Jesus to keep him off and to distract him from his course and get him away from the cross but he kept his eyes fixed and no matter what people said and no matter what threats came he was looking at the joy in front of him so he went directly to the cross he says this is why I'm here this is my goal interesting enough later on just a few words later in the same chapter in the book of Hebrews he says take care that there not be any ungodly or immoral person among you, immoral uh, being the word pornos. Did I pronounce that okay? Hearing that word, do you, can you imagine what kind of immorality we're talking about? It's talking about sexual immorality. It says, take care that you don't fall into that trap. And you know what he compares it to? He says, don't let somebody stay in that trap who becomes like Esau, who sold his birthright, the blessing of God. Esau was the firstborn, firstborn son of Isaac. And Esau, by right, had the blessing of the firstborn on his life. But he got hungry. He came home from hunting. And, and his, his, his brother, his twin brother Jacob, was making a meat stew. And he smelled the stew. And he said, oh, I'm so hungry. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob had his eye on the blessing of God. And he says, you give me your blessing. I'll give you the stew. And Esau says, fine, fine. You can have my birthright. I just want some stew. Oh, how short-sighted. When you think of the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how stupid to give it up for a little bit of stew. It's temporary. It'll only fill you up for, you know, a few hours. Is it worth it? And he compares this in Hebrews to those that are giving up such great things. Now, we all, we're all stupid at times. Let's just admit it. Right, Jared? We all are. 
We're going we're gonna to mess up. I don't want to. We will. And thank God the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. Thank God we have a high priest who intercedes for us. But you could spend your life not looking at the goal, distracted by all these things, and you could sell what God's got for you for just a, for a quick fling, for something easy, for a little distraction. He says, don't be like Esau, who for a little soup, a little stew sold his birthright. Now watch the contrast. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Esau, for a little stew, sold his birthright. Esau sold his birthright for some stew. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Do you see the difference? They got their eyes set on something different. You can follow Esau. You can follow Esau and, and get distracted by all these little temporary quick things. Or you can be like Jesus and set your eyes on him and say there's something far greater than what the world has to offer me. And it's what he has to offer me. It's what he purchased for me with his blood. And I want that. I want it more than anything else. Because Hebrews 11 is along those same lines. It says, oh, Abraham could have lived in fancy cities, but he chose rather to live in tents because he was looking for a city whose foundation and builder is God. It says, Moses could have lived with the sinners in palaces, but he chose instead to dwell with the people of God and endure what they were going through. Isn't this awesome? You got a choice. You've got a choice. You're going to focus on what's right in front of you? Or are you going to set your eyes on Jesus and say there's something far better? And when he writes this letter to the Hebrew people, he's telling them, if you have this attitude, there's nothing that can prevent you from reaching your goal. You will endure You'll keep going. You won't fall into a trap. Your limbs won't be put out of joint. There's nothing that can stop you. You know, I mean, I think about guys like Paul that were on their way to Rome. And the ship is about, he's on a ship going to Rome. And, and the Lord told him, you're going to preach to Caesar for me. You're going to speak in Rome for me. So Paul goes, okay. And when they arrest him, he says, fine, I appeal to Caesar. They go, no, it's okay. You can have a trial right now, right here. Yeah. Nope, I'm appealing to Caesar. Okay, fine. All right. Take him to Caesar. I mean, that would be like you getting arrested for a traffic ticket and you're going, I appeal to the Supreme Court. <laughs> Maybe not quite that severe. I appeal to Caesar. So he says, I've got to go to Rome. He's on a ship that's about to crash. He says, no, I've got to go to Rome. And everybody's afraid. Even these experienced veteran Roman soldiers says, we're, they think we're going to die. And an angel appears to Paul and says, the Lord told you you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. Paul says, guys, take courage. You're going, because I'm on the ship, you're going to survive. Because I must go to Rome. If you do what I say, you'll, you'll spare your lives. So they did. And they land on this island. And the locals are looking at Paul like, oh, he must have done something really bad. Look at all the guards around him. And he's shipwrecked. He must have done something really bad because he's shipwrecked. The gods are trying to kill him. And their, their suspicions are only confirmed when Paul starts to gather firewood and a, one of the most poisonous snakes on the island bites him on the arm and he'll be dead in minutes. And instead, he walks over to the fire and he sh casually shakes the, the serpent off. And the locals have their eyes wide because when, when the serpent bites Paul, they say, oh, that's it. 
justice is, justice is happening. He must have done what they said he did because the gods are trying to kill him. But he shook it off in the fire because he's got to go to Rome. He recognized something. When your eyes are fixed on the goal that God has set before you, nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop you. Now, that means that nothing the enemy sends against you can stop you. It also means you've got to choose not to be distracted. You've got to choose not to sell out your birthright for a little bit of stew. Nothing can stop it. Let's think back what, about Jesus as we get ready to close this. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, who said, this is the hour I was born for. I've come to this hour. Father, be glorified. Jesus, who said, I don't have time for this. I've got to be lifted up so that I can draw all men to myself. Jesus, who said, you tell that fox, I've got day one and day two where I'm going to heal the sick and I'm going to cast out demons. But on the third day, I reach my goal. You were on his mind all his life. He cared enough for you to say the cross is my goal and the resurrection is my destination. And because of you, I'll gladly do it. It's joyful to me what good news follow Jesus don't follow Esau follow Jesus praise God let's stand up thank you Jesus